Amen. Well, good morning, church. It is so good to have you in the house. It is good to feel a full room today, man. We're so glad that you're here. And my name is Scott. I, get the, I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor of GT among an amazing and gifted staff, amazing worship team, man. We're so glad that you are here to celebrate with us today. Some of you are, are new to the church and you're like, man, these people are crazy. You know, what's this all jumping around on the stage and like, uh, yeah, pretty much. Um, you know, but let me explain why. You know, and that, that's the heart of today's message. I want you to understand if you're new today. Some of you are part of the church. You've been to the church longer than I'm alive and you get all this. And Easter Sunday, it's like the Super Bowl. Uh, but if you're newer today, let me kind of let you in on a little secret. We believe that the day of the resurrection of Jesus, Easter Sunday, is the weightiest day in human history. We believe that there is no other day from the beginning of time through the end of time that is of greater consequence than the day that Jesus walked out of the tomb. We believe that, and the Bible even says that, the Bible says that this day is the fulcrum of our faith. A fulcrum is that, that point on which everything pivots, right? And this day, the day of resurrection, is the fulcrum of our faith and the fulcrum of history. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, if Christ is not raised, in other words, if Jesus is still dead, Paul literally writes in the word of God, then your faith is useless, you're still in your sins, and he says, you are to be pitied more than all people. If Jesus is still dead, then none of this matters, church. I mean, it's nice, you know, we have beautiful music and we get to be together and drink some coffee, have cookies and have a ham today or pork, whatever it is that you're gonna have. Just don't eat sauerkraut, like that's of the devil, okay? I'm just kidding. But, um, you know, all of this would be nice and well and good, but it doesn't, it doesn't have eternal consequence. If Jesus is still dead, then this is a nice thing to do. But can I tell you, church, if Jesus is alive, then nothing matters more than what happens in this room today. Nothing happens more than what happens across the churches all over this planet that are celebrating and acknowledging and, and praising Jesus and, and giving praise for the resurrection of Christ. This is the most significant day of history. And today I wanna share with you the way that one of the gospel writers gives us the story. Um, again, many of you might be new to the church, so I'm gonna kind of fill in some of the blanks and some of the details of the story just so that we can kind of immerse ourselves in the story of the resurrection of the empty tomb. Uh, it's a beautiful story. It's, we're gonna be in John chapter 20. If you have a Bible, feel free to open it. But most of what we read will be on the screen today, so you don't need to have a Bible. I know it's Easter. You got the photos and all that. Maybe you didn't bring a Bible. That's okay. Uh, but I wanna share with you some of what I think are the important aspects of the the story of the resurrection. Uh, many, there, there are four different gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the four of them together give us a complete picture of what happened on that day 2,000 years ago. I'm gonna kind of work to <clears throat> harmonize and stitch together some of the details so that we have a full picture of what that day looked like. It started very early in the morning. Uh, John tells us, and I won't read this part, but that while it was still dark, a woman named Mary Magdalene, along with some other ladies, uh, ventured out to the tomb. And what they were doing was there was a, a custom in ancient Israel that they would go after a body had been entombed and they would open up the tomb and continue to prepare that body. They would anoint it with spices and herbs and, and uh, not that they would think that they could prolong it any longer, but it was just a, a custom in their day. So Mary Magdalene, along with some other ladies, were making their way to the, the tomb. 
When they get to the tomb where Jesus had been buried, they'd find that the stone had been rolled away. Now, the, the Gospels tell us that an angel had come down out of heaven and rolled the stone away. So the, the ladies get there, and they're like, they're, they're kind of puzzled. They're like, well, we weren't even sure how we were going to move the stone, so I'm glad it's moved, but I'm not sure how it got moved. So Mary, the lady who's in focus today in, in the story, she sees the, the stone rolled away, and she kind of like, again, they're, they're panicked, they're overwhelmed with grief, they're confused, they're disillusioned, they don't know what to make of this whole thing. Jesus, who they followed for three years, who they watched heal the sick, raise the dead, give sight to the blind, restore hearing to the deaf, make the cripple walk. They watched him for three years perform the miraculous, and they watched him die on a cross. Now they're confused, they're like, what on earth? Like, we thought that he was the one, and now he's not the one, he's dead. And so they get to the tomb, and Mary, seeing the stone gone, she just panics, I believe, and just kind of runs off. She, she wants to go tell Peter and John, who are in Jerusalem, these were two of the closest followers of Jesus. So she runs off and, tell, and, and goes to find Peter and John. Meanwhile, the other ladies who were there, they venture into the tomb. And they walk into the empty tomb. They encounter two angels, all dressed in white. And the angels that were there, they said what you heard Pastor Scott say earlier, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. And so the ladies who stayed and walked into the tomb have this encounter with the angels. And they're, over, they're overjoyed. They're like, oh my word, we've got to tell the, the disciples. So they run out of the tomb and head east to Bethany. So there's, there's a group of ladies who who heard this story that the angel said Jesus is alive, they go to Bethany. Meanwhile, we're gonna pick the story up in John chapter 20 where Mary is, is unsure. She doesn't know what to think. She's confused. She's heartbroken. And she goes to find Peter and John who were staying in Jerusalem that night. And this is what it says. So she came running to Simon Peter in verse two and the other disciple who's named John, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. I want you to pay attention a bit to some of the words that John, again, being led by the Holy Spirit, chose to use when he captured this account. Mary says, we don't know where they put him. She's operating under an assumption that Jesus is still just a dead body. She's not thinking Jesus got up and walked out of the tomb. She has the assumption that the, the body of Jesus has been taken out of the tomb and been put somewhere. So she comes back and tells Peter and John, I don't know what happened. Like, she's probably, she's probably talking very fast like I am. She's probably overwhelmed. She's like, I don't know where he is. They took him away, and I don't know where they put him. And so it says, so Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb First, I don't know if you see competitive spirit in that. You know, I'm an identical twin, so my twin brother and I compete at everything, literally everything. We worked at McDonald's when we were teenagers. We would compete and time ourselves who could dress the burgers the fastest. It wasn't healthy, okay? It was dysfunctional, but that's just what brothers do. So you see this in here. Peter, and as John writes it, he's like, I actually got there first. Anyway, it's just in there. You can read it again later. So it says, John, he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. So again, many of you are church people, you know Simon Peter's personality. Peter was the kind of person that would, would act first and ask questions later, right? Like he would, if, you, if you're a parent in this room and you've had one of those kids that, that they kind of speak first, and then later on they'll consider what they're about to say. Anybody raise one of those kids? I'm familiar with that anyway. Um, so 
Peter is one of those people. So he goes straight into the tomb. It says he saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. And then it says, finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, again, you see some of that, some of that competitive nature, also went inside. He saw and believed. I wanna pause just for a minute there. John says that we saw, he's speaking of himself and Peter, we saw and believed. Now we don't know for sure what they believed at that moment. All we know for certain is that they believed that Jesus wasn't in the tomb. They're not sure where he is. Is he dead still? Is he alive? Was he taken? Did the, did the Roman authorities steal the body of Jesus? Did the, the religious leaders of the Jews take the body? They don't know. All John says is they saw and believed. He actually adds a little parenthetical thought here. It says, they, did not, they still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So it suggests to us that they don't believe that he's alive, just that he's been taken out of the tomb. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So there's another detail I didn't mention, but one of the gospel writers tells us that when they go into the tomb and they see the, notice too that there are no angels there. When the ladies were there earlier in the morning, two angels appeared and said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here, he's risen. The angels had disappeared, so when the men get there, there's no angels. There's just the, the linen cloths that Jesus had been wrapped in. And one of the gospel writers actually tells us that the cloth that was wrapped around Jesus' head was sitting on the bench folded neatly. I think that's an interesting detail. It, it kind of suggests to me or conjures the image in my mind that when the Son of God came back to life in that tomb, he, I, again, I, I'm gonna throw some details in here that the Bible doesn't give us. It's just my imagination. But you can picture Jesus like sitting up in the tomb. It's perfectly dark. He's like, all right, I guess I'm alive. So he, he knows he's alive, right? But he, he, he unwraps himself. He takes the time to fold the garments. And I wanna, this is what I noticed here. And I wanna tell, maybe just one person needs to hear this today. God is never in a hurry in your life. We often want him to hurry like, oh my word, God, like I prayed yesterday, I believe today, by tomorrow I should have an answer for my prayer. How many do that? Come on, raise your hand, right? We all do that. We're all like, God, you're late. Can I remind you that God is never late in your life? And God is never in a hurry. As indicated by the fact that Jesus, before he vaporized out of the tomb in his glorified body, he literally took the time to fold the cloth that was around his head. The other thing that I notice here is that Peter and John are likely working under some common assumptions, right? Like, the, the, you know, we, you and I all have assumptions in this life. One of the assumptions that every one in this room shares is that gravity always works, right? How many have tripped and fallen? You're reminded that gravity is a thing, right? Every time you fall, you'll be reminded that gravity is always in effect. Another assumption that I have in this life, many of you probably share it, is that the lane of traffic that I've, I've chosen will be slower than the other lane. Does anybody share that assumption? That is, yeah, the passing lane. That's the only lane I like to drive in. Anyway, um, another assumption that takes it into the grocery store, an assumption is I, I assume I'm always choosing the slower line. Anybody assume that with me? And the line, and if, and if I move from the line I'm in, to another line, I have now made that the slower line. Just assumptions we work on, right? We just have these assumptions. There's an assumption that Peter and John have, that Mary had, 
because they didn't see the angels that dead people, generally speaking, stay dead. Now, they had all witnessed Lazarus come out of the tomb. They had seen one or two resurrections. But in general, an assumption is that dead people stay dead. And so Peter and John have this working assumption, and they're also confused. So Peter and John leave the tomb that day uncertain. They're not sure. It says they believe, but they just believe that the tomb is empty. What do they do now? Like, we thought he was the one. This was the Messiah, the anointed one. This was Jesus. We watched him with our own eyes heal the sick and raise the dead. And now he's gone. And they're confused and they're heartbroken. They're disillusioned. This is not what we thought was going to happen. Mary, on the other hand, just lingers. Mary was a woman, the Bible tells us that Jesus, earlier in his ministry, had delivered seven demons out of her. Again, I don't know where you're at in your life, and if that seems crazy to you, the Bible speaks on a regular basis about demonic oppression and possession. And the Bible says that Mary was a woman who had seven demons that Jesus had set her free from. Now she lingers. She's like, I don't know what to make of this. My, my, my girlfriends are gone. They went to Bethany. Uh, Peter and John left. I'm just here alone, and I'm outside the empty tomb. She's heartbroken, overwhelmed with grief, and just confused. And so John writes this. He said, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. And the angels speak to her. Again, just picture this, this empty tomb. The angels speak to Mary and they said this, woman, why are you crying? Again, as you read that, I'm not sure what kind of voice inflection you hear in the voice of the angels. I kind of hear like, woman, why are you crying? Like, why are you upset? Like, he's alive. Like, why are you upset about this? And so they're asking, they said, her, woman, why are you crying? She says, she responds to the angels, they have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. Again, Mary has an assumption. Mary is assuming that Jesus is still dead, that, but just that his body had been taken away. Again, remember, she came to anoint the body of Jesus with some spices and some perfumes to, to preserve it in the tomb. And so she's assuming that Jesus is still dead. So that she said, they have taken my Lord away. I don't know where they put him. At this, this is where the story turns. This would be, I, I used the word fulcrum earlier. This is the pivot of the story. It says, at this, she turned and saw Jesus standing there. But she, was, she did not realize that it was him. Again, we, don't, we can't read the mind of Mary. The, the Bible doesn't tell us what's in her mind, what's in her heart, what's in her thoughts. But I, I, I kind of wonder, one of two things is true. Either Mary is so overwhelmed with the moment, just kind of confused and like just filled with grief. She sees Jesus, but she's so in her pain that she can't recognize him. Or th this happens at other times that Jesus prevented her from recognizing him at first. We don't know exactly why she didn't see him, but she didn't recognize that it was Jesus. So it says this, um, at this she turned and saw Jesus standing there. And I want you to, I want you to kind of, capture the significance too. Jesus throughout his ministry had encountered many people. He had many conversations. He had healed many people. He had delivered many people. He had 12 followers that had followed him for three years of ministry. Now, one of them was no more because Judas, who had betrayed him, had gone off and taken his own life. But the other 11 were still alive. Jesus could have decided and handpicked any person that he wanted to first 
reveal himself to as the resurrected Messiah that they were waiting for. And the Bible tells us that Jesus, the plan that God had from the beginning of time was that the Son of God, Jesus, would someday die on a cross as a payment for your sin and my sin. And the Bible tells us that from the beginning of time, it was planned that Jesus would only die, wouldn't only die, but that he would be raised back to life on the third day. So here we have Jesus fulfilling a prophetic utterance that was written hundreds and thousands of years ago. He could have picked anyone to first reveal himself to, but he chooses Mary. And I wondered about that, like, well, God, like, why would Jesus pick Mary? Why not, like, John? John was the beloved. Why didn't Jesus pick John? Or why didn't he go to Peter first? Like, Peter was the loudmouth. He was the one that would broadcast the news. Why did Jesus pick Mary? And here's, again, this is just the way my mind works. Here's what I wonder. I wonder if Mary was the hand-selected first resurrection appearance because Mary was an illustration of the redemptive and rescuing power of Jesus Christ. Mary had been delivered from seven demons, and Mary had been rescued, redeemed, restored, set in her right mind, set free, and forever radically changed because of what Jesus had done in her life. And I wonder, I just wonder, if the reason that God decided that Mary would be the first one to lay eyes on the risen Lord is that her life is a picture of the reason that Jesus came to rescue and to redeem those who are lost and far off from God. That who, that's who Mary was, and that's not who Mary is. And so Jesus chooses significantly to reveal himself to Mary first. So it says this. So Jesus initiates a conversation. It says he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Again, the same words that the angels had said. Now Jesus says to Mary, woman, why are you crying? Then he then he asks, have you ever been around somebody who asks obvious questions? Yeah, so you have, right? Like, you know that person in your life who asks the obvious questions. Like, why are you asking that? Like, everybody knows the answer to that question. Jesus is about to ask the most obvious question that's ever been asked in all of history. He says to Mary, why are you crying? Then he says to Mary, who is it you're looking for? Well, obviously, maybe this is the first rhetorical question of all time. I don't know, but Jesus says, who are you looking for? And I want you to notice something. Because some of you in this room have been looking for a what. You've been looking to satisfy that, that empty space in your soul with a what. And maybe Jesus is saying to you today, who are you looking for? The problem is you've been looking for a what when you should be looking for a who. And Jesus says to Mary, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? He calls out the obvious, you should be looking for a who, not a what. And I'm saying that to some of you in this room or some of you online, stop chasing the what and start looking for the who. Maybe that's a word for one of you here today. So it says, again, thinking he was the gardener, Mary's still confused, she's still like, I don't know what's happening, but it says, thinking she was, he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away. Again, assumption, Jesus is still dead. Where'd you put his body? She says to this man that she thinks is the gardener, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him. The third time in the story, we hear those words, where have you put him? Where have you put him? Where have you put him? Just tell me, I wanna go find him so I can do what I've come to do. 
I want to anoint the body of Jesus and do what our custom calls for. And this is where the story finds its fulfillment. So Mary, confused, like, I don't know what's happening. Where did you put my Lord? The Bible says, John records, Jesus said to her, Mary. He calls her name. He says, Mary. And when Jesus utters her name, her eyes are opened, and she says, Rabboni, which means teacher. Lord, she, as soon as she hears her name, she recognizes that he is the Lord of all lords. And I, I wonder, there's some of you here today that Jesus is about to call your name. Jesus is calling your name. Maybe you're here today because of an invitation. Maybe somebody bribed you to come here. I'll buy you lunch. I'll, maybe they bartered with you. I talked to a lady earlier today. There was some bartering going on. Like, I'm not sure why you're here. Maybe you just wandered in today. But I believe that in just a few moments, you're gonna, you're gonna sense that the God of this universe is calling you by name. In the same way that the risen Jesus stood outside of his own empty tomb 2,000 years ago and called the name of Mary, he's gonna call your name and your eyes are gonna be opened and you're gonna see Jesus in a way you've never understood him before. This is how the story finishes. Jesus said, do not hold on to me. So she's overwhelmed, probably went to hug him, right? She's like, oh my goodness, I can't believe it's you. Do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Do you see this, friends? Jesus appeared to Mary before he even went to see his father. It's an illustration of the gospel. It's an illustration of why Jesus came to rescue and redeem lost people. You might say, well, who are lost people? You are lost people. I was lost people. Every person is lost before they come to know Jesus as Lord. This is what Easter's about. Amen. He came to rescue and redeem broken humanity. So Jesus said, go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. So Mary Magdalene went to the other disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. So she becomes, not only is she the first one to have a conversation with Jesus in his glorified, eternal, resurrected body, she becomes the first eyewitness and the first witness of the Lord. Later on in the book of Acts, Jesus will appear to his disciples again and say, go and be my witnesses. In all of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth, Mary was the very first witness of Jesus. She's the first one ever to tell someone else what she had seen and heard. And so she goes to Peter and John who were in Jerusalem. She said, I've seen the Lord. He's alive. I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. And then this is where the story turns. Again, it turns a couple times, but this is the end of the story. And I wanna, I wanna set this up a little bit. So again, if you're new today, you don't know all of these details, but the Bible tells us throughout the scripture in the New Testament that Jesus actually appeared to more than 500 people after he had rose from the dead. Mary was the first one of over 500 eyewitness accounts of Jesus. In Corinthians, Paul says that Jesus appeared to the brothers, to the 12, and then to 500 believers in the city. 500 people saw Jesus alive, but the disciples hadn't seen him yet. So later on that day, this is still Sunday, still Resurrection Sunday, the women had come, they had seen the angel, they had gone to Bethany to tell some of the disciples. Mary comes, she sees Jesus, she goes to Peter and John. Later on that same day, the disciples are together in a locked room, and Jesus decides to do what only he can do in that glorified, resurrected body. 
I, again, I don't know how it works, if he went through walls, if he just kind of, he can just kind of transport himself, but the Bible says, John said, he just appeared to them. And he appears to 10 of them, and then Thomas wasn't there. Many of you know, how many, even if you're brand new today, you've heard of the phrase, doubting Thomas, raise your hand, right? Raise your hand if you, come on, you're not, you're just not playing my game. Raise your hand if you know doubting Thomas, come on. We all have heard of that phrase. So Thomas wasn't there, then Thomas comes, he said, well, they, they all like, we saw Jesus. And Thomas says, well, unless I see the nail prints and the hole in his side, I won't believe. And then Jesus yet again appears supernaturally and says, Thomas, and Thomas says, Jesus said, look at my nail prints, look at my side. And then Thomas goes to one knee and he says, my Lord and my God. And at the end of that encounter, John tells us what Jesus says. And he, he addresses a topic that we saw throughout the story. We saw that Peter and John, it says they believed. We saw that the, the women believed. The focal point of Easter is belief. What do you believe? That is the focal point of Easter. If you don't believe me, look at what Jesus said. Jesus said to him, so he's saying, talking to Thomas now. He said, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Now a lot of us, again, here's another assumption. Another assumption is we, we often hear the phrase or use it ourselves, seeing is believing. Unless I see it, I won't believe, or show me and I'll believe. Like, that's a common mindset in our culture. Unless I see it, I won't believe. Can I tell you today, church, that the kingdom of God is inverted from that? And Jesus is about to lay out for us an eternal principle. Rather than seeing is believing, Jesus tells us in the kingdom of God, believing is seeing. And he says this, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are you and I, those of us in this room, who have not seen Jesus alive because we still believe. There's a blessing on those who believe and haven't yet seen. And truly, so John writes this, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Here it is, here's the focal point. Here's the purpose of John's book, of his gospel. Here's the purpose of Easter. This is it right here. Why we jump, why we, why we worship, why we act crazy in this church. This is it. But these are written that you may believe. There it is again. These are written, John wrote his gospel, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. What is the point of Easter? It's a celebration of the single most important day of all of history, the day that Jesus walked out of that grave on his own accord, resurrected from the dead, after having purchased mankind with his own blood, having died on the cross on Good Friday. And Easter then is about believing that he is the Son of God, and that by believing we can have life in his name. Let me say one more assumption here, and I'm gonna close. So uh, many years ago, I had the privilege of playing minor league baseball. Um, I didn't share this at nine o'clock, but I just feel compelled to let you know or, or share this story. Um, I, I was a pitcher, I was a bullpen pitcher in the minor leagues with the Cleveland Indians for three years. And I'll never forget, you know how you have those conversations, you're like, I'll never forget that. I, I will never forget this conversation I had. I was talking with a, another young man who was a ball player, he was a pitcher, one of the relievers, and 
we try, you know, I was always looking like, how can I share faith with these guys? And the, the conversation went from physical to spiritual. So we talked about God and Jesus and all those things. And, and I was talking about heaven and hell and, and knowing Jesus. And his response, I think, is a representation of a common assumption that many people have. His response was the extreme of that assumption, but it was an assumption nonetheless. And he said to me, and I'll, I'll, it's, it's interesting, he had my name, his name was Scott. So Scott said to me, he said, you know, he, and I was talking about like going to heaven and how you get there and all, he said this, he said, it's not like I'm an ax murderer or something. Here was his assumption. Scott's assumption was that as long as I haven't done anything egregious in this life, God will let me in. And that's an assumption that maybe some of you have here in this room today. But can I tell you that you will not find that anywhere in the pages of Scripture. You won't find that in the words of Jesus. There's nothing in this book that suggests to us that God will let you into heaven as long as you haven't committed an atrocity or an egregious sin. In fact, quite the opposite. The Bible is extraordinarily clear that the only way to have eternal life in Jesus, we just read it, is by believing. By believing on Jesus, what do I believe? I believe that Jesus was the eternal Son of God who died on a cross as a payment for my sin and that he rose again on the third day to prove that he was the Son of God who he said he was. And then John says, by believing those things, you have life in his name. And I wanna give you the chance today. Some of you maybe walked in here, you're like, oh, I don't know, I'm not sure I wanna be in church, but you came anyway and you're here. And I believe that some of you are here by divine appointment and God is calling your name. He's calling on you because he wants you to make that decision today, to place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe on him in his name so that you can have life forevermore. In fact, I wanna ask you just for a moment to bow your heads and close your eyes. I wanna give you the chance to respond to this message. We believe that, that Easter is the most significant day of the year, and I would hate for you to walk out of this building and to not make the most important decision that you'll ever make in your life, to believe on Jesus and have life in his name. Now I'm gonna count to the number three. When I get to the number three, if you are in this room and you know that God is calling your name, that you sense the Spirit of God, you feel His presence, you're not sure what you feel, you just know something is happening right now in your soul. God is looking to fill that void in your soul, not with a what, but with a who. And He's looking for you to put away your assumptions and to say, you know what, I'm ready to take that step to place my faith in Jesus Christ and have life in His name. If you're here today and you're ready to make that decision, when I get to number three, I want you to stand where you're sitting right now. Don't be afraid, don't be scared, don't let fear get in your way. When I say the number three, I want you to stand proudly and boldly in your, in your seat and say, it's me, Pastor, it's me. I wanna give my life to Jesus. I am not gonna leave this building not knowing where I'll spend eternity. One, two, three. Who is it today? Who is it that's gonna stand? Thank you. Anybody else? Go ahead and stand to your feet, anybody. Anyone, stand to your feet. Go ahead, don't wait, stay on your feet, stay on your feet, stay on your feet. Give me a little more on the monitor, guys. Stay on your feet. Now some of you, some of you are still sitting and are thinking to yourself, man, I, 
I know I should stand. I know that I'm not right with God. I don't know where I'm gonna spend eternity. Don't let this moment pass you by. Don't let this moment pass you by. In fact, our ushers are, are, are looking around, not to embarrass you, but to put you some information in your hand. They wanna give you a packet here that has a booklet in it to tell you, what do I do? Now, now that I've stood in church with these crazy people, you know, what, what do I do now? Well, there's a book in there called Getting Started. They wanna, we wanna help you on this journey. There's a card in there. If you would take a moment and fill out that card, we would love the chance to follow up with you. Fill that out, drop it off at the hub on your way out, and um, we'll follow up with you this week, not to, not to chase you or stalk you, but to just help you on this journey in your faith. Again, if you, if you still wish that you had stood, it's not too late. If you have a bag in your hand, you may be seated. Thank you for standing. Can we get it up for these people who stood? Come on, somebody. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I want to pray with you. I'm going to pray with those who, who stood up. Listen, the Bible says we're never to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to commend those of you who stood today. You were not ashamed. And God called your name. God sees you. He already knew your name. He called it today. And you have, the Bible says, because you believed, you now have life in his name. Again, I'm gonna tell you what to pray. It's, it's, it's a heart transaction. The words don't save you. The belief in Jesus saves you. I believe that some of you who stood your faith to stand, you're already a believer. You already are born again. You're a new creation. God is, the old is gone. The new has come by standing for Jesus today. But I wanna pray with you. Let, let's bow our heads one more time and pray. God, I thank you for this amazing Easter Sunday. God, I, I thank you for every single person that stood in this room. I believe, God, that they stood for Jesus today. They stood, God, as an indication that they're ready to put their faith in Jesus and that by believing they have life in his name. Thank you, God, for the new life that's been born in this church. I pray, God, that you now help them to see you in a new light, that they have, have had Jesus revealed to them, to them in a new way, that they walk out of this building changed forevermore. Help them, God, on this journey, I pray. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Church, one more time, let's celebrate.